it going, everybody? This is uh, Trevor. This is the podcast Champagne Sharks, which I'm sure you know. And uh, we have with us a special guest, Corey Robin, someone that you guys asked for a lot, uh, Dr. Corey Robin. And uh, I'll allow our guest to introduce himself and um, let you know where to find him and what he's about. So, uh, hi, uh, thanks for having me. I'm Corey Robin. I'm a professor of political science at Brooklyn College and the CUNY Graduate Center. Um, I, I don't blog that much anymore, but when I occasionally do, I'm at CoreyRobin.com. I feel like blogging is a lost art. That I, <laughs> I, I I used to blog I used to blog too and like many people I got like seduced by Twitter and it's it's not the same I think we really lost something by losing uh, by giving that scene up too uh, quickly so uh, I admire and appreciate anybody who has stuck with uh, blogging even if it's sporadically yeah no I I totally agree I mean I used to blog all the time and and now it's pretty much on social media and um, I regret that because blogging is is somewhere in between writing a you know. A, a written piece of uh, in print publication or a web publication and it's something in between that and, and twitter and i don't get the chance to do it that much yeah and even the threads they're not the same even if you try to make a long form because like you're halfway through in real time and like 10 bad faith responses have already uh started coming at you before you even finish your thought and yeah it's just the, the wild wild west so i i imagine it like that scene in the simpsons where they're coming down with the pitchforks i feel like that's what uh <laughs> twitter is a lot of the time in, in a way the blog comment section wasn't really you could kind of curate the discussion a little bit better to make it more constructive or productive yeah definitely definitely i mean i usually try with those long threads on twitter just to um to write them all in advance and then post it at once so you're not distracted by all the comments while you're composing your thoughts. Yeah, that's a good feature that they added. I'm, I'm glad they, they did that, but I still have trouble remembering it out of out of habit. You know, I'd still do it the old way, and I forget, and I instantly regret it. But yeah, you're so you had two books, and I wanted to uh, touch on uh, both of them. What was interesting is I was planning to finish both of them, but I only ended up uh, finishing one and doing most of the second because even though the Clarence Thomas one wasn't that long, I was making a lot of notes. And, and thoughts and so it wasn't a super long book but it took me longer than it would normally take because I was uh, pondering a lot about it and going off into um, other thoughts I was disturbed by how much I actually ended up kind of I'll put it like this there was a there but for the grace of God go I kind of uh, feeling to uh reading the book and you know being uh, i feel like most black people have gone through a stage where they have either fully embraced or at least uh flirted with uh black nationalism especially um if you're coming from a certain generation like uh, clarence thomas talks about generation from the 60s but you know in the early days of hip-hop in the late 80s early 90s uh there was a strain of that too there was like a uh conscious hip-hop afrocentric thing like you know these things go in cycles and you know i've even read a Thomas Sowell books. Yeah, and, and Thomas Sowell is an interesting one. That would be a book I would love if you... I'm not saying you need to write it, but I want someone to write that. that The treatment that you gave uh, Thomas Sowell, I would love someone to do that for... Uh, I'm sorry, the treatment you gave uh, Clarence, Clarence Thomas, Thomas I, would, I would love someone to do that for Thomas Sowell as, as, as well. But you know, if you know anything about Thomas Sowell, they think it's interesting, you just want to throw it out there that maybe you found while researching the Clarence Thomas book, please, by all means, uh, share it. Um, well, I mean, just a little factoid, which is in, uh, buried somewhere in the book, is that, uh, you know, Thomas Sowell, as you know, is a huge influence on Clarence Thomas, and he was 
probably one of the, there were multiple factors that turned Clarence Thomas uh, to the right. I mean, just so your listeners know that Thomas began, his political consciousness was on the left and he was um, black nationalist and a black nationalist militant as an undergraduate. Um, and uh, I like how you said that uh, he, he thought Eugene McGovern was too conservative. Was it, was it George McGovern? Yeah. Uh, no, George, George McGovern, McGovern. Yeah. 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 Yeah, he did. And uh, who was, you know, a pretty left-wing presidential candidate in 1972. But uh, and, and 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 Thomas really, you know, and people don't know this really about him. Um, it was actually discussed at his Senate confirmation hearings when he was appointed to the Supreme Court, but people, it got overshadowed by Anita Hill. Uh, but he was a campus militant and he, um, a firm believer, Malcolm X was a huge influence upon him, as were the Black Panthers. Um, and in 1970, mid-1970s, he, he, he makes a turn to the right and, and a big influence on that turn was Thomas Sowell, whose book Race and Economics came out, I think, it was in 1975, and, and Clarence Thomas read it um, right away. And th- this is the reason I was I was bringing all this up is is that he, he Clarence Thomas is in Miss, um, in Missouri at the time um, in Jefferson City, which is the capital of Missouri, and he he makes the trip to St. Louis to hear Thomas Sowell, who's in town debating um, this very little known uh, law professor. Uh, by the name of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, so it's one of those uh, kind of moments of history where, you know, somebody um, who, well, several people who end up becoming quite famous um, are, are encountering each other. But, but Thomas Sowell was a huge influence. And again, for, for listeners who don't know, um, he's a, uh, uh, an economist, um, very right-wing economist, um, and but also began on the left and was a Marxist uh, and then went to the University of Chicago. So I agree with you. There is a whole story to be told there about Thomas Sowell and um, somebody ought to do it. It's not going to be me. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, because it probably retread a lot of ground. I'm sure you probably want to break in a different type of uh, focus because, you know, one thing that they have in common, one thing that they have in common for sure is that it's not the cut and dried black conservatism that we have now there's a there's a weirder more dumbed down version of black conservatism now where i think neither um clarence thomas or thomas sowell could be a hero in it like like we're in this age of the um diamond and silk what's what what's her name i can't believe i forgot her name because she's always a candace owens oh, candace um, yeah yeah, this kind of like almost uh, buffoonish or like Candace Owen kind of reminds me of Tommy Lauren in that she's not very serious. She's more just kind mm-hmm. of an attractive uh, face uh, mm-hmm. that it, it, she's like, a, she's like a, a, a weather girl or something. Someone who's just kind of uh, reading off of something like, you know, both both of them kind of remind me of that. Uh, whereas uh, Thomas Sowell was there's a kind of you talk about in your reactionary mind like i'm actually kind of going back and forth That's uh, fine. but in reactionary mind one of the things you talk about is how sometimes one of the things that people underestimate about the right is the extent to which the right will uh use talking points or things from the left to get its uh point across like how i'm i'm drawing a blank on his name he, he, the guy who's always talking about campus conservatives but but he'll he'll talk about how um uh certain authors are underrepresented in the canon and you know he'll use right. that uh cultural studies um right. argument to uh get get right-wing thinkers in there mm-hmm. and and um yeah i mean that's and, a and, sorry go ahead 
Oh, no, 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 that's okay. You were going to say? Well, I, it's a it's a really important point, um, and I think it oftentimes gets overlooked. And I, and I think there's there's two ways to think about this. Um, so again, for you know the reader, uh, for listeners who um, don't know this book, the Reactionary Mind, which I wrote almost ten years ago. Um, looks at conservatism from the very beginning, which you know goes back. It it it, it arises in in during the, the during the French Revolution, and from the beginning, uh, conservative thinkers have always been deeply influenced by the very movement that they're opposing, um, whether it be the French Revolution, abolition, um, the New Deal, the women's movement, the Black freedom struggle, whatever it may be. What's mo- one of the things that's so interesting about conservatives is how how much they are imprinted by the very, as I say, the very movement that they oppose. And sometimes it happens in the way that you just described, where they're, you know, borrowing talking points. And it's very cynical and instrumental and strategic, and they're doing it very self-consciously. And I showed throughout the book how that happens. I think the more interesting thing that is, is that oftentimes conservatives are influenced by the left in spite of themselves. And end up mimicking its language, not self-consciously and strategically, but uh, unconsciously and unstrategically. And, and that Felix to me... Schaefer was your example. Right? Say again? Uh, Felix, Felix Schaefer, I don't know how to pronounce right, it. Right, Phyllis Schlafly. Yeah, exactly. Felix Schlafly was, I remember, was your example. Yeah, um, and which, you know, there's a uh, there's a series on, I think it's Hulu, called Mrs. America, which is about this. And it's actually quite good on this. And, it, you know, that, that, that's one of the things I found about her was that in arguing against feminism, she oftentimes ended up uh, using the language of feminism. And sometimes, again, it was strategic and instrumental and cynical, but more interesting was when it was when it was not. And it makes sense when you think about it. I mean, imagine you're fighting with an, an, an enemy every day rhetorically. Over time, uh, parts of that worldview are going to be part of your own. And I think this is what makes conservatism in any different, in any given age, different from its predecessor. No, no moments or eras conservatism is going to look exactly like its predecessor. And there's a very strong reason for that, which is that the, the movement that conservatism is opposing at any given moment in time is going to be different. So the conservatism that opposes the New Deal is going to be different in part from the conservatism that opposes the black freedom struggle. Yeah, and and that point, I think, kind of ties into why there were certain types of conservatives of a different era, like Thomas Sowell, because there was this kind of idea that we want to, like, tolerant um the left or we want to like i feel like liberals uh very much in their tokenism are very into credentialing um and and having their tokens be be credentialed you know so it's kind of like um a benign type of a benign type of tokenism where you want the person to have certain degrees you want the person to maybe be like ivy educated be you know you know like so 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 for example um and obama is like is like a dream um hmm. for that type of uh liberal racism you know mm-hmm. whereas i think on on the right there was this kind of thing where you know because there were it was okay to be more overtly racist back in the day they wanted more straight up um minstrels or mm. or whatever as their as their uh tokens and i feel like soul came in a era and i think um walter williams and clarence thomas and these other ones where you know uh, same with um colin powell or condoleezza rice where the right was trying to uh kind of go more into that period from lee atwater to compassionate conservatism of uh, george w bush where they wanted to have like their tokens be seen as 
hyper competent as the left tokens. And so it was like a soul was somebody who, you know, oh, he's a great economist and he can argue um, minutia and 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 policy and stuff as and economics as well as um, anyone, you know, and and the the appeal of him was that he was supposed to be um, that, that he's black and he's a shield for saying racist things, but he's also um, hyper competent and, and hyper smart. And I feel like that's a window where someone like Clarence Thomas, you know, came in during that during that time mm-hmm. too, as opposed to say Ben Carson now, right. where it's like they're yeah. trying to get people as buffoonish as uh, possible. And and in a way, like I mean, Donald Trump himself is is buffoonish, so it's. I was going to say, I think it mirrors a larger moment of general buffoonery. You know, I don't think uh, black conservatives are that distinct in that regard uh, from uh, white conservatives. Um, but I think you're right. And I would also, if I could add something to what you're saying, I think it, there's a larger reason for what you're talking about, which a lot, a lot of people have noticed this about conservatism. Uh, that there seems to have been a just general decline in its intellectual quality from, say, the 1950s um, to the aughts. And for many liberals and many uh, never-Trump Republicans, this is a, a source of great dismay. And they say, oh, conservatives used to be like William F. Buckley. Or they used to be so uh, intelligent and, and so on. Um, and so there's a there's a general distaste for the declining standards of conservative interlocutors, um, which is an argument that I don't, I don't really buy into. But I do think the kernel of truth, um, and it gets to what you're talking about, is um, is that uh, in in every generation's conservatism, it's always going to be at its most intellectually and politically potent, right when it's in the crucible of a battle against a real left. Um, and, and when I say a real left, I mean a left that has done what it set out to achieve. Um, so in the French Revolution, it was the dispossession of the aristocracy and the church to a large degree. Uh, abolition was the the, the um, emancipation of uh, uh, the overthrow of slavery. Um, the New Deal was really the, uh, the partial dispossession of the business class. And in each of those eras and each of those moments, there's a conservatism that arises from real material loss, and I stress real material loss, that, uh, that understands that we got, we, the right, the conservatives got beaten, and we got beaten for a reason, and we damn well better figure that out and come out of it. Would you, would you include, um, like, the, the 60s and the hippies and the defeat of um, Barry Goldwater leading to Ronald Reagan as one of those examples, or is that a little more? I, I think that's an extended example. Um, it's a complicated question you're um, asking, and um, historians kind of debate this. I mean, I generally think of the modern American right as really situated in the backlash first against the New Deal, and then second against the Black Freedom Struggle, the Civil Rights Movement in the 60s. Um, and so, the, so these were, so these aren't just, these are, these aren't electoral defeats that I'm talking about. They're real, um, like I say, real acts of material defeat, um, where something major has been lost, uh, in the social structure. Uh, so the defeat of Jim Crow, legal Jim Crow, that would be the kind of defeat that I'm talking about. Um, and so, uh, Conservatism, when it's faced with those kinds of defeats and those kinds of acts of dispossession from the left, 
uh, they're for conservatives are forced to go back to first principles and say why why did we lose what happened to us where did we go wrong and out of that experience you get a whole uh, explosion of conservative thought um, that's innovative and dynamic and inventive and creates some of the greatest literature of the right that we know of. The problem that conservatives today face, and, and here, uh, you know, a lot of people on the left um, depart from my analysis, but I think it's true, um, is that conservatives won. Um, they were able to defeat the workers' movement and the labor movement, and they were able to basically uh, stop the civil rights movement and the black freedom struggle. Now, that's beginning slightly, perhaps, maybe to change today, but we can get to that uh, later. But they, they really were able to defeat, the right was able to defeat both the black freedom struggle and the labor movement. And coming, uh, and then enjoy, and, and then enjoy the fruits of victory. And for conservatives, that ironically poses a big problem uh, because they get comfortable in victory and they get um, complacent in victory and life gets uh, too easy for them uh, in a way. Um, and then you start getting these kinds of clownish figures. And Trump is a symptom of precisely that. The right during the 1960s and 1970s would have never thrown up a figure like Trump um, in his clownishness and his profound lack of seriousness because the right was deadly serious about beating back a very powerful left. But once there's no more left to beat back, the right grows comfortable. Uh, and kind you know, of... I think there's a, ex- a good example of that, by the yeah. way. Uh, when you're saying it, it's like forming in my head was the George W. Bush uh, years. I remember, especially that first term before um, Iraq went south, mm. there was a real gloating, yeah. um, coasting under laurels um, attitude toward the whole Fox News scene. Mm-hmm. I remember talk radio and Fox News were so culturally dominant. I mean, like, even a lot of liberals used to just watch it because they just found it more entertaining, even if it was to hate watch. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, there was something about, like, the, the that era of Hannity and Combs. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there was a Daily Show and that stuff, but people used to really... Um, now it's more niche, more niche than it was, but at the time, like, people would really track what Bill O'Reilly was saying, even if it was secondhand through, like, uh, you know, Mediaite or Media Matters. Like, like people would read blogs. Just to know what did Bill O'Reilly say last night? Even if, even if I'm not gonna watch it, I want to see you know what he said. What did Sean Hannity do? Like oh Hannity and Combs. Oh Combs is a punching bag. Whatever. And what's interesting was it really felt. I remember a lot of liberals felt really despondent or demoralized, and and the right really felt um, ascendant. And I remember how clownish right before our eyes uh, Fox News was getting. Like, people like uh, Hannity, when you really look at him objectively, I mean, the guy is like a total moron, you know? Right, but- right. Yeah, and and, and, I mean, and again, I, I think you're absolutely right. In, in a way, the, the George W. Bush regime was the, the, the apex of their power. Um, and it, it was exactly that. It was a moment where this tremendous uh, complacency set in. Um, and I've been, you know, I, I think they've been on a downward trajectory since then, which, um, you know, we could talk about the, the reasons for, for why that is. Uh, and that, but that's why you get um, the situation where we're in, where they don't, they don't have any kind of real intellectual ideas. And the political, everything is... Uh, is a retread of older ideas. So, I mean, this is where I think the left goes really wrong with Trump. They think he's inventing a new form of conservatism 
or they, they did up until a couple of weeks ago. And now I think everybody thinks he's on his way out. Um, and, and from the start, I've always thought that he was recycling and that that recycling of old stuff was a sign of a conservatism that's increasingly exhausted um, and weaker and weaker. And again, you have to know something about the history of the right to see this, uh, because the right that formed between the 1930s uh, and then kind of reached, uh, you know, uh, power really with the victory of Ronald Reagan um, was a very different kind of right. Not because they were smarter people and not because they were better people with better manners. It, they had to be uh, smarter because they were um, on the losing side uh, and, and they wanted to they wanted to win. And, you know, that struggle disciplines you and makes makes you work. <laughs> I guess this sounds like a right wing talking point, but there's a certain truth to it. Um, no, that kind of <laughs> that kind of political struggle really makes you work harder because you can't take anything for granted. And the right used to not be able to take things for granted. Um, and 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 now I think they do. And, and you do have some figures on the right who are nervous because they see the signs of weakening. And um, they remind me a lot, frankly, of John C. Calhoun. Um, who was the one of the big defenders of slavery and the kind of the architect of the Southern position? Um, who early on during the abolitionist struggle uh, warned fellow slave masters: these people are coming for us, um, and they're going to they're going to win if we don't get our act together. Uh, and so I, I think you know some people on the right um, have begun to figure that out. Yeah, it, it's 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 really we see some have begun to uh, figure that out. Do you think right now we're in one of those um, complacency moments again? Absolutely. Um, and so an interesting figure in this regard I, I is Ross Douthat, the New York Times columnist, who gets a lot of hate for you know good reasons um, from liberals and the left. But I think one of the things that Douthat has been onto um, is, is that the right is in a steadily weakening position um, and that... Uh, they're, they're, they're kind of uh, they're, they're kind of people they, in his account the right are like people who are celebrating you know staying too late at the party long after the party is over and don't realize that it's coming to an end uh, and nobody listens to him um, and the reason nobody listens to him on the right is because they say well look we've got Trump in the White House we've got the Senate and most important of all we've got the courts but if you know anything about the history of the right if the right is having to rely upon those kinds of institutions for its power, that's usually a sign that it's 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 heading for defeat. That's not a sign that it's a vibrant, strong um, movement. Oh, oh, that that's interesting. Can you unpack that for a bit? So, um, if they're relying on um, which which aspects? The the court the courts in particular. Um, so so let me step back a second. Um, and you know the argument of the reactionary mind is is that conservatism is fundamentally a movement of reaction. And it's a movement of reaction against um, social movements of emancipation from the left. And those movements of emancipation from the left change over time. As I said, the French Revolution, abolition, uh, the labor movement, the black freedom struggle. Um, these movements change over time, and there's always a reaction against them. Um, and the, one of the interesting things about the reaction against these movements, and I, I hinted at this, we talked a little bit about this earlier, is that um, the conservative understands that if we're going to regain power from the labor movement, let's say, or if we're going to regain power from the civil rights movement, we can't simply just say the same old things that we used to say. We have to be as dynamic and as popular and as much of a mass movement as the movement that we're opposing. Because the movement we're opposing has changed the rules. 
We can't go back to the old game. We've got to play a new game. And so that makes conservatism, oftentimes I call it a mass movement of privilege. It's trying to restore um, a kind of hierarchical system. That's the key thing. But it understands that you have to do this in a way that's a little bit more populist, a little bit more democratic, a little bit more majoritarian, a little bit more mass. It has to have a taste. Conservatism has to have a taste and a, I say in the book, a taste and a talent for the masses. So this is this weird thing about conservatism is, is that it's very much of an elitist movement of hierarchy and privilege, but it's it, it has always sought to cast itself and to try to be a mass movement of hierarchy and privilege. And this is why racism, for instance, is so important to, 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 to the conservatism. And it's not something that Donald Trump invented. Um, it goes way back uh, because racism is a way of democratizing privilege. Um, the Southern slaveholders understood this very clearly. John C. Calhoun, James Henry Hammond, these people um, who, who defended slavery in the Old South, they understood if, if this institution of slavery is perceived as a kind of aristocratic institution from which only an elite few benefit, we're screwed. So what we have to do is to make all white men understand that they are part of this system too. Um, and that's, you know, in, in, in a way, part of the part of the genesis of racism is a, it's a way of democratizing privilege. So so that's the backdrop to everything that I that I was saying before uh, about the courts. So when conservatism comes to rely not on the popular vote and remember, we've had three elections in the 21st century in which the conservative candidate won. And in two of those three elections, the conservative candidate lost the popular vote. That's unprecedented. That hasn't happened in this country since the 19th century. Um, so that's new. Uh, and they were able to sneak in, in, two, in those, with the Electoral College, which is a very anti-democratic institution. And this is why, and, and, and so, so they're relying upon not a majoritarian institution, but what's called you know, a counter-majoritarian institution, the Electoral College. Um, and they're secondarily what they're really relying upon long term is control over the courts. And, 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 you know, people have talked about this a little bit, but, you know, what has Mitch McConnell, what has been his most important single-minded focus from the very moment that Trump was elected? Get conservatives onto the court. Get conservatives onto the court. So the whole, you know, this whole time throughout this pandemic, you know, this is what McConnell is constantly trying to do, is to vote on conservatives to the court. Now, why is he doing this? Is he stupid? No, he's probably the only person, you know, in the Republican Party who has any understanding of what's going on. And that is, he sees very clearly that the left and liberals and, you know, Democrats are kind of getting, you know, more and more ascendant. And he understands if they lose, if the right loses power in an election, they're going to have to rely upon one institution, and that's the judiciary. Uh, and and so, and again, that's even more anti-majoritarian. You know, so they're, they're planning to just basically strike down any single law uh, that the Democrats could get through Congress and sign in, in, with the president in the White House. And um, there's an irony here, um, which is, you know, for many um, liberals, I would say, you know, they, they think Trump, one of the horrors they have of Trump is that he attacks the rule of law and the Constitution and the courts. But the irony is, is that long after Trump has left power, whether it's in November or four years after that, I don't know. But long after he's gone, his legacy will be protected, uh, not by a white racist majority. It will be protected by the courts, um, the judges whom he has appointed, the very thing that liberals think of as their protector against the right. So, 
it's a very strange world we live in. Um, it's very strange. One of the questions I always have, and I don't know if this is a naive way to think or if it's something that maybe is true, but practically there's no way to do it. But one thing I find very interesting, and it ties into what you said, is that there's this kind of just acceptance as the way it is that the court is this powerful. And that's just what it is. And I feel like uh, at some point, the right in history, from what I read, used to be worried about the um, power of the court. And instead, they've just kind of uh, bought into it, too. Like, leave it as powerful as it is. Let's just be the ones to be in control of it. And um, I was wondering, does anybody, whether on the left or the right, um, even talk or think about uh, shrinking or taking back the power of, of the court so it's not as powerful as it is? Or is that just a horse that left, that's left the stable, is never coming back? No, I mean, I, I think there are uh, some left political and legal thinkers even um, who have really begun. Jedediah Purdy, who's at Columbia Law School, um, is one. Um, and uh, Sam Moyne is another who's at Yale Law School. Um, but I, I want to let's step back for a second there because, um, ironically, the right, um, the right actually way back when, you know, uh, really saw the court as its protector against the legislature. Um, and uh, particularly during the Gilded Age, you know, between the 1880s uh, and the 1930s, uh, the Supreme Court was constantly striking down uh, worker, pro-worker legislation. And the courts were constantly issuing injunctions to stop workers from striking. So for many leftists and even many liberals, they did not under, they did not view the court as their friend. The court was the enemy. And the goal of the workers' movement was to try to push, put the court back um, into a box and to constrain its power. Um, and, 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 and this is a big battle that goes on in the end of the 19th century up through the 1930s and 40s. And then something does change, and I think this is where the point you've just made comes in, where with the Warren Court um, uh, on, on a host of issues, um, the court begins to reassert um, its power. Uh, and it's a liberal court. Um, this actually begins in the 1940s. Um, and um, there's some great scholarship on this um, uh, Jeremy Kessler, who's at the Columbia Law School as well, has written about this. And so, uh, you know, the court begins to, a, a kind of a liberal court begins to reassert its power. And conservatives, you're right, hate that. And so you have a generation of conservatives who really critique the power of the court. And then, as you say, at some point, they begin to change their tune. And now they really see the court as their ally. Uh, and again, so much so that this is the, the major, this is Ma Mitch McConnell's major um, agenda. Um and, you know, Trump has appointed, you know, the number of judges Trump has appointed, um, he, you know, is much, much more um, than I think at this point any other president um, has in, in the past. Uh, and so now I think liberals and the left are, some of them are beginning to question whether or not um, we really want to be defending the court as our friend, because, you know, uh, I mean, this gets to the Clarence Thomas book. You know, Clarence Thomas has now been on the court the longest of any person. He's the, the most senior justice. Uh, and he's only 72 years old, I think, maybe 73. He was appointed as a very young man. Um, he's going to be around. He could be around for, you know, if he's around for another 10 years, he'll be the longest serving justice in American history. Uh, yeah. And, you know, there's a very, you know, there's a very, they have five uh, uh 
very solid. Is it, yeah, it's five. Uh, or is it six? I can't remember. <laughs> I'm losing count here. No, it's five. Um, so they have very, you know, solid uh, five Republican justices. Um, and they want to hold on. I think, no, actually, I'm wrong. It's six. Anyway, whatever. Um, and, and they're going to be here for a while, you know. Um, uh, and conservatives have been very smart about this, uh, appointing very young uh, justices uh, to the court. And, and you, you know what's interesting, um, too, is that I feel that um, one of the things that works a lot to the establishment Democrats and the establishment conservative wings of each party is that, um, you know, I think there's a certain type of person in each camp that is thinking, you know what, let's just do a long ground game. Uh, we don't want to vote for the lesser of uh, two evils every time. Uh, right now, it's the it's the liberals who are in that camp, you know, where a lot of people are like, forget a Joe Biden. He's just uh, old old school uh, liberal centrist uh, accommodationist politics. We want we want uh, a real leftist. We want a real radical. We're willing to lose and just um, have a long game. Like like we're, we're ready to be in for a 10, 20 year fight. Kind of like what people, I think Perlstein uh, claims that that was a legacy of Goldwater, that uh, after Goldwater, there was a um, multi-decade like ground game that they were willing to play. And the thing that people... Uh, a lot of times let themselves get talked into as far as not thinking about the long game is they say, oh, but if Democratic president doesn't win, we're going to lose X amount of seats to um, the other side in the Supreme Court. And I feel like every election now, that's kind of what we get told. Like you can never do do a long ground game because the court is that important. You have to, every election ends up being a lesser of two evil election because you can't let those seats go. Yeah, um, you know this is, and it's a real, um, it's a real conundrum. You know, uh, the irony is, you know, at least when it comes to the court now, uh, the two oldest justices are uh, Ginsburg and Breyer. You know, they're well into their eighties. So, if um, the likelihood is, if if the Democrats win, um, they're not going to get more liberal seats. They're just going to get a replacement. Of, of the seats. Um, you know, I, I wrote this Thomas book, you know, I finished it about a year and a half ago. One of the problems once you finish a book is it kind of all the facts that you had at your fingertips uh, f- fall off your fingertips. So I was just trying to kind of go through the court and, and figure out um, how many seats the liberals have and how many seats the conservatives have. And I, I still can't um, exactly remember. Plus it's probably a part of your brain that just wants to like jettison the information because well, you've been so... So immersed in it. <laughs> well, it's true. You know, it's it's like, and and I never, this Thomas book was a new thing for me because I'd never written about the court or uh, legal doctrine or anything like that. So it's it's a strange world, the, the law. <laughs> um, and you know, I immersed myself in it for many years and also trying to figure out his relationship, Thomas's relationship with African-American political thought and politics. Um, and so, but the, the court stuff, um, it kind of disappears, but anyway, um, the point is, is that, uh, this, this issue of controlling the court is, is, is dicey because, you know, in in some ways, I think the real agenda for the left is to beat back the power of the court. It's not to, um, it's not to have a lot of liberals on the court. Now, the, the, the dilemma around that um, is that in order to, partially in order to beat back the power of the court, the court needs to limit itself. 
Uh, and that's what happened during the New Deal. There were a lot of New Deal justices who were appointed and they self-consciously limited the power of the court. Um, so you need to have the kind of the right justices in order to do that. But it's 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 tricky. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. It, one thing one thing about the uh, Clarence Thomas book that also surprised me was not just about Thomas, but in general, I always just thought that there was a certain amount, there's a certain type of real pedigree of um, judicial accomplishment and intellectualism that uh, you usually had to have to be a Supreme Court justice. And I was kind of surprised how um, various Supreme Court justices in our history have Mm-hmm. Uh, barely even like practice law, basically, yeah. and uh, and and Clarence Thomas had a, had one of those type of backgrounds where he was kind of more into politics, it seems, and he kind of just gravitated into being a judge more because it was a way to enact um, or make make headway into politics more than yeah. any real curio- intellectual curiosity about uh, being being a judge. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you raised that because it's a super interesting point. Um, and I think the context for what you're talking about is, is that we today, we've come to be- take it for granted that somehow or another, somebody who's on the Supreme Court is going to be, as you say, a, a pretty esteemed either legal scholar or jurist and have a kind of long uh, background as a jurist. And um, I think at this point, everybody on the Supreme Court um, has a, 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 a JD from either Harvard or Yale Law School. Um, now, historically, though, uh, and many of them were law professors um, uh, before they became Supreme Court justice justices. Um, historically, that's pretty odd. Um, throughout most of American history, um, Supreme Court justices were po- were political actors um, and had political experience and. Uh, were elevated to the court, um, uh, the Warren Court that we were just talking about. Chief Justice Earl Warren, he had been governor of uh, California. Um, that was his big claim to fame. Um, he had a legal background that he had been attorney general, I think, as well of, of California. Um, but but he he was a governor. Um, uh, Justice Marshall, Chief Justice Marshall, who's the first, you know the, the big major chief justice who kind of creates the court um, in terms of its role and all the rest of it. You know, he had been. Uh, an actor, a political actor in the um, with the uh, with the Adams administration. So uh, th- there's a long history of that, and in the modern era, that's changed. And and Clarence Thomas is kind of a throwback to that older history because, um, as you say, he wasn't a, a, he was by you know by no means a legal scholar. Um, he had only been um, he he was elevated by George H W Bush to the Washington Court of Appeals. Um, you know, about 15 months before he was elevated to the Supreme Court. Uh, and and that was it. I mean, that was really his only judicial experience. What he was, was a political operative um, and a kind of political, uh, you know, I wouldn't say a political intellectual, but, um, you know, he was somebody who reasoned his way to his ideas with this blend of black nationalism and black conservatism. Um, and he spent, you know, the 70s and the 80s um, in in the political world. Um, and so it, I think it makes his Supreme Court opinions um, a little bit more interesting, to be honest with you. There's a, uh, you know, of all the, the justices, I would say he's one of the best writers, which people don't realize. There's a clarity and a pungency. He knows how to land a punch when he, he writes an opinion. I mean, you read somebody like Alito um, or Ginsburg or Breyer, you know, they're kind of the circuitous, you're always lost in yeah. the middle of their opinions. 
with Thomas, you always know where you are, and he doesn't um, he doesn't hold back. I mean, I, I talk about this in the book, just the the kind of rhetorical assault um, that he launches. He knows exactly what he's doing. Lawyers are terrible writers as far as being engaging. Like yeah. it's, it's really bad. Yeah, exactly. No, they are, and 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 the the ones I'm talking about, it's not even just the lack of engagement. You just like you, I literally cannot, you know, at any given moment in time. Parse. They, it's hard they, to part. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're just sort of lost in their own words. Um, so uh, I, I, honestly, honestly, even if you look at things like the Constitution, <laughs> right, which which is the Constitution is a very well written document. And if and if you had lawyers today, uh, like, like I'm, I'm not that great on history, but from my understanding, a lot of the people in that room were not were not lawyers or wrote the Constitution, the original Constitution. And it's a pretty well written, clear document. If you had like today's type of uh, lawyer or bureaucrat try to create the Constitution, like if all that happened today, it would be like a 400 page document right. of just impenetrable, right, uh, securitous, uh, technocratic a mess. I, I mean, that's, you know, that's what happened has happened over the 20th century. You know, the constitutions that were written in the 20th century tend to be extremely long. Um, I wouldn't say necessarily the constitution itself is so clear. I mean, it uses words that um, have a kind of simplicity to them, but it's a deceptive simplicity and a deceptive clarity uh, that we don't really know what these words mean. And part of the reason why we have so many fights um, about the Constitution, part of the reason, is that we don't actually know what does equal protection of the laws actually mean. Um, you know, when it says Congress shall make no law uh, abridging the freedom of speech, what, what does that actually mean? No. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. The freedom of speech is something that people think they understand. And then when you actually, like, read free speech scholarship, it's amazing yeah. how much of what we understand to be the freedom of speech is, A, it's not even really in the... Um, language and it's very constructed uh right and recent you know yeah. it's uh yeah yeah recent. no no i mean yeah i i totally agree with you but but my point is today they would make it 400 pages and it was still just <laughs> yes. confusing and fought over yeah. so yeah. At, at the very least it's uh as confusing as it would be today or or less confusing but at the very least it'll be shorter yeah no, absolutely. No, it's it. You're absolutely right. Making it longer doesn't, in no way, necessarily resolve the the, the confusion. But, but back to Thomas, though, I do think it um, it makes his opinions um, kind of interesting, and 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 they're much more political. I mean, so much so that um, there are a couple of cases where he, you know, his fellow conservatives will join him, and then at some point they'll they'll jump ship, you know, because. You can see they're kind of looking around. They're like, "Holy shit, where is he going with this?" And it usually involves questions of race, um, because um, you know Thomas uh, has a very strong vision of the centrality of race and of racism uh, in American politics in the American legal order, um, and that doesn't sit well with a lot of conservatives who want to make. Uh, you know, they, they, they give lip service and, um, you know, the rhetorical nods, they, they want to claim that they're colorblind. And Thomas has always made it very clear um, from the beginning that he does not believe that the United States is a colorblind society. And, and not only that, he doesn't believe it ever will be a colorblind society. He believes in, um, I wouldn't want to say the permanence because permanence is a very strong word, but it's almost close to the permanence of... The word that popped into my head when I was reading your book was uh, was trenchant. Mm. As in, like, it's it's not uh, 
per it's it's not permanent but it's very stubborn yeah like you know it's 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 um if, if it's not permanent it's at least very close to it like it's not gonna go go easily a- absolutely um and you know he uh he does not um you know think racism has has gone away um now this creates a lot of, uh, when I say this to people, that creates a lot of confusion because they say, well, hold on a second, he seems to be always ruling against black people, um, which he oftentimes is. Um, there's no doubt about it. But uh, the, the, I think that the foundation of his worldview begins with this very pessimistic view of the possibility of racial progress. Uh, and he thinks that African Americans are, are on a fool's errand to um, look to the state, to look to the Democratic Party, to look to politics of any sort as the answer to their uh, predicament. And from the beginning, what Thomas has sought is to produce a kind of a change in in the worldview of African-Americans. And he's been very clear about this. I mean, he understands that African-Americans, for the most part, do not agree with him about a lot of this stuff. He, he's very clear about this, uh, but he wants them to change their beliefs, um, to understand that because white racism is so persistent, as you were saying, because it's it, it's so... Uh, um, By the way, trenchant was the wrong word. That does not mean what <laughs> I thought it meant. I, uh, I'm i thinking of a different T word that, that means like stubborn and and very hard to uproot, but it wasn't uh, trenchant. I was I, I looked it up after I said it because it didn't feel right. No, no I, I mean, I knew what you meant. So I, maybe ten, tenacious or something like that. Um, that might have been what I was thinking. Yeah. Um, yeah. but, but I know exactly what you're talking about. And, um, uh, that's what he thinks. And, 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 and he says, well, if you, if you, if you understand that, and he thinks most black people would agree with him about that. And he's, he may be right about that. Um, if you understand that, then you have to understand that the state, the government, um, and the political process are not your friends and, and will never be your friends. And any white person, any white liberal, any white progressive who tells you that they want to use the state to help you is, in fact, your enemy, is, in fact, your most dangerous enemy. Um, And here there's, you know, uh, there's a certain strand of Malcolm X thinking that's quite similar. Um, You know, Malcolm X, you know, distinguish, you know, between the the wolf and the, I think it's the wolf and the fox or the lion and the fox, you know, the one that pretends to be your friend and then, you know, stabs you in in the back uh, versus the one who's just quite open about their hostility to you. Um, and Thomas has a very similar line. And so for him, the Republican Party has always been the enemy um, that is open in its hostility, and therefore it's clarifying uh, for African-Americans. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, by the way, you're right. It is it is the wolf the wolf and the fox. Oh, okay. Yeah, and, and actually, I, I realized the word I was trying to think of. It wasn't trenchant, it was intractable. Oh, intractable, that, that was, yeah. Yeah, that was the word I was, I was thinking of. But um, I made a note when I was reading your um, book, and I put it here. Um, and two of them weren't surprising, but the, there were three things that, that I wrote down. I put Malcolm X meets um, meets uh, Thomas Sowell's Black Conservatism meets Frank Wilderson's Afro Pessimism, and the third part was the part that uh, surprised me. But um, you know, um, Afro Pessimism by uh, Frank Wilderson is very much into the idea of how, how how entrenched in in uh, societal thought the bottom caste status of yeah. of black people is, and how hard it is to um, 
make people think think differently or or change that and it almost has an almost fatalist um edge to it which uh thomas sowell doesn't really have thomas sowell uh there's a lot of thomas sowell in uh there's a lot of thomas sowell in clarence thomas especially the the prose because because thomas sowell is a engaging writer as as well that's one of the reasons why i ended up uh, reading a lot of his stuff, even if you do more research and kind of realize that there's something, uh, there's some, there's some, a little bit of sophistry or mm. some things, some things that don't hold up. He knows how to write very persuasively and with punch and engage your senses. But he's one of those people that I think a lot of uh, right wing people like him in that he kind of gives the idea of you know bootstraps, um, uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, the idea of institutional and structural racism is overstated. It's just a lot of uh, um, cultural and pathological type of forces, you know, kind of like a, a Moynihan-ish type of yeah. argument. And if you just get rid of that and, you know, uh, stop using race as an excuse or whatever and level the playing field as far as take away affirmative action, uh, through harder circumstances or, I guess, going through the fire, um, Black people will, I guess... Uh, conquer and that was definitely very much in, in what you described with Clarence Thomas. I wasn't surprised by that. But um that fatalism is not really in in soul at all. But uh it is definitely in Clarence Thomas. I didn't realize that until you um until I read your book. So the Malcolm X part, uh as 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 weird as it sounds, I wasn't that surprised by it mm. when when I when you mentioned the wolf and the fox speech, mm. I was like, you know what? That is that is right. And the Thomas Sowell thing, I definitely saw, especially in the prose. But I was surprised by the by the fatalism. I did not know that about uh, him at all. And I don't know if you know anything about but but Afro pessimism. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, I I didn't in the end get into this in in the book, but I was reading quite a bit of the Afro pessimist letter literature um, when I was writing this, and I had originally intended to engage more with that, and then just decided not to and 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 uh but i found an awful lot of stuff in in wilderson um uh in in clarence thomas um and you know this idea you know particularly this kind of the ontology of anti-blackness um you know just that that racism is this kind of thing that exists um i think thomas clarence thomas at one point says you know it has i can't i can't remember the exact quote you know it has no roots um, and, and, and by that, you know, it, it, or it has roots that are so deep that you can't, you don't even know where it began or something like that. Um, and like Afro-pessimism, he's very, very unafraid of invoking like the original sin of slavery as far as the cause of things, whereas a lot of black conservatives really try to downplay slavery. Yeah. They want to make it seem like it was just, uh, you know, a, a tough job. Right. You know, he, he does not do that at all. He's, he's surprisingly very frank about it. Yeah. And not only that, um, you know, he's also an originalist claiming to interpret the Constitution as it was originally understood. Now, when most white conservatives say that, um, what they mean is the Constitution as it was adapted, uh, adopted in, in, in the, you know, 1789, um, uh, and which was a, a slaveholders Constitution. And Thomas, um, uh, first of all, says that and admits that. Um, he's quite frank about that, that it was a slaveholder's constitution. But the other thing that Thomas does is that he also says that the constitution was fundamentally altered. We created a second constitution 
with the Civil War and Reconstruction, with the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. That, in other words, the battle over slavery and emancipation, the black freedom struggle of the 19th century, fundamentally altered the Constitution and made it a very different kind of Constitution. And there are very few white conservatives uh, who would make such a claim. Um, and so what's really interesting with Thomas is that, for instance, if you look at his Second Amendment opinions on the, the right to bear arms, they are kind of history lessons in the centrality of um, black violence and white violence, uh, the centrality of, uh, of people who were enslaved and then people who were free get control over arms and armaments. Um, and uh, he, you know, is, um, in fact, he, he, two things that are sort of interesting, it might be interesting to your listeners. First of all, he quotes extensively from Herbert Apthecker's book on the history of slave revolts. Now, for those of you who don't know, Herbert Apthecker was a member of the Communist Party, and he was one of the pioneering scholars. He got this from Du Bois, uh, one of the pioneering white scholars on the history of slave revolts and how important they were. You know, most white scholars tended to really downplay and ignore this stuff. Um, and, and, and there he is in Clarence Thomas's footnotes about the, the centrality of black revolt armed revolt against the white masters. Um, so that's one sort of thing that's interesting. But the, the second thing, and, and this came out in a case, um, I don't know, it was a year ago, two years ago, um, where he's talking about the black codes, um, which were you know used to beat back reconstruction. Um, and uh, he's, again, citing very liberally from Eric Foner's work on reconstruction. Eric Foner is the great historian of reconstruction, who's still alive and with us. Um, and I, I mentioned this to Foner, I sent him an email about this and he said, yeah, you know, um, he's had a correspondence with Clarence Thomas and Clarence Thomas is a, like, you know, really knows his kind of civil war reconstruction history. Um, so, you know, that's a long winded answer to your question and point about that, you know, the history of slavery is very important and the battle over slavery is really, really important. Uh, to Thomas and informs a lot of his jurisprudence, even on things that seem to have nothing to do with it. So his campaign finance jurisprudence will make mention of the fact and talk about the fact that campaign finance law uh, was written by uh, Ben Tillman, uh, Pitchfork Ben, who was you know a white supremacist who led pogroms against um, black people in uh, South Carolina. Uh, and he talks about this, you know, so, so, you know, this history is really important to him and is all over uh, his jurisprudence. All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good.